You are listening to Adventures in Buddhism. I'm your host, Morris Sullivan. Today, I'll share with you a talk I gave at White Sands Buddhist Center about how to tell whether or not a spiritual teaching is reliable and beneficial. But first, I'll tell you this story about a monk whose practice led him to a profound insight. The Buddha had given this monk a meditation practice, and then the monk went off into the forest to meditate on his own. He tried very, very hard, but he felt he was making very little progress on the path, and he became discouraged and despondent. He decided he'd go back to the monastery and talk to the Buddha about the difficulties he was having. On the way back, he came across a blazing fire. To escape the fire and get a sense of how to proceed, he climbed to the top of a mountain. Looking down on the fire, seeing it spread through the forest, he had this thought. Just as the fire burns away everything before it, so knowledge of the path removes all fetters, the obstacles to realization and the attachments to that which fuels stress and suffering. Later, when the Buddha heard this monk say this, he told him, You are on the right path. A monk who takes delight in mindfulness and sees danger and heedlessness advances like fire, burning up all fetters, great and small. Hearing those words from the Buddha, the monk became enlightened. The Buddha's mother uh, passed away shortly after he was born, and he was raised by uh, his mother's sister, Mahapajapati. And so this is a conversation he had with her, and, um, and basically she had ordained. She was uh, the first woman to ask him for ordination. And so he ordained her and a whole bunch of her friends who followed him, to, followed her to a monastery where he was staying. And so they spent some time uh, practicing with him during the, probably the rain, rainy season and stuff and getting basic instruction. And so this conversation happened when she went to him and, um, and, and I'll just read what it says. It says, on arrival, having bowed down to him, she stood to one side. And as she was standing there, she said to him, it would be good if the Blessed One would teach me the Dharma in brief, such that having heard it from him, I might dwell alone, secluded, heedful, ardent, and resolute. So, so before any go, I go any farther, uh, let me ask you a question. Ser- serious question, not a rhetorical question. I want to hear some answers. When you hear a, a spiritual teaching, I say something, or somebody on the radio says something, or you read a book, uh, you know, a spiritual book or something like that, and, and you hear something or read something, how do you decide whether or not it's true? And by true, I mean spiritually useful. You know, it's something that you can rely on as being helpful in your life. And, and I'm curious about this, and, and I'll tell you what the Buddha said later, but I want to know what you, how do you decide? Yes. You, a gut feeling, okay? Any, anything else? Does it make sense? Does it make sense? All right. Yeah. Seeing it work for others, you want to try it? Okay. Well, I'll tell you what the Buddha said. So, so, so 
You know, she had been practicing with, and those are all good answers, by the way. That's fine. I, I'm not going to argue with any of you. Those, those are good, good places to start. Um, it was common in those days when someone would ordain for them to spend some time getting teachings. Usually, you know, the Buddha was alive then, so usually with the Buddha. Um, later on, it might have been with an advanced monk. And then after some period of time, they would leave and, and go out. And they would, first of all, they would talk to other people about what they had learned. But they would meditate in the forest and spend some time in seclusion and that sort of thing. And so when you do that, you know, thoughts arise. Or you're talking to other people and maybe somebody else says, you know, I heard this thing and it made sense to me. And that kind of stuff. And so she wanted to know when she was out there practicing, after she left the monastery and, and the presence of the Buddha, when she heard something or experienced something or a, an insight arose or whatever, how could she tell if it was true? And this is still important today, I think. You know, there are a lot of other teachers out there and there's self-help books and spiritual and religious leaders and sometimes you hear something that sounds good you know, but how do you know if it's going to really help you where you're, get where you're trying to go? You know, you're trying to achieve some level of awakening. So how do you know what you heard is going to do that? You know, one of the other things that kind of inspired me to talk about this this week is I, there's a Catholic church in Daytona Beach, Our Lady of Lords, where they have uh, a couple of interfaith services a year and they've started doing them in person again and they always invite me and so I was there uh, Thursday for the National Day of Prayer for their interfaith service and I was there with the, the local uh, representative of the Muslim community and the Sikh community and uh, Hindu community and a couple of Christian guys and a rabbi and a Unitarian Universalist and you know everybody got up and said a few words it was all very short teachings and then said a prayer basically for peace and unity and that kind of thing and I always enjoy those because I always hear things that you know I have a, a nice gut reaction to or they make sense in a way you know and that sort of thing and so I was thinking, you know, we, we are unique in this time and place in that we have every possible religion available to us. And so we can hear things that, that sound pretty good, sound pretty interesting. So, so the, to have a test to put them to and go, okay, what can I do with this? Uh, I think could be useful. So the Buddha started out saying, here's some ways that you can tell an idea is not aligned with the path to freedom, the path to awakening. And first he says, you might know these qualities and say these qualities lead to passion, not to dispassion. Now again, these are things that are not aligned with the Buddhist teaching. They lead to passion, not to dispassion. So passion is kind of a troublesome word. He meant something kind of specific here. He doesn't mean you know, caring about something and committing to it, which a lot of the time when we think, I, you know, I have a passionate interest in teaching the Dharma, right? That's not what he's talking about because that's, I care about it, I make a commitment to doing it and doing it as well as I can, and that's a good thing. The passion he's talking about are things like greed, wanting something and thinking that that's the way to happiness, 
or having an aversion to something and, and thinking that you know you need to get away from it. Things like anger, hatred, fear, delusion. Passion, the way he's talking about it, is an emotion, a feeling, or something that traps the mind. Traps the mind. You ever hear somebody say, well, I knew I shouldn't have done this, but I did it anyway. You ever said it yourself? Right? Something came up and it trapped the mind. You knew you were going rid of doing the wrong thing, but you did it anyway. So a good teacher doesn't tell you what you want to hear. He or she tells you what you need to hear. What's pleasant to hear isn't always what is going to be beneficial because a lot of the, the times, those are things that trap the mind. And if they trap the mind, they lead to the next thing, which is to being fettered, not to being unfettered. In other words, to attachment, not to freedom. So even with our practice, we shouldn't be attached to ideas like, well, this practice is the only true practice or anything like that not being attached to things that lead to suffering is important. So a lot of time people get confused about attachment and non-attachment. Non-attachment doesn't mean detachment. It doesn't mean you walk around not caring about anything. It means that you're not attached to things that lead you to, to uh, continue a cycle of, of difficulty, a cycle that's going to keep you suffering. There's this trend, this sort of philosophical trend that goes back to, I think, probably the 19-teens or 1920s, somewhere in there. That is kind of reflected in things like the science of mind and religious science and stuff like that. You see this idea come up once in a while, that if you want something badly enough, the universe will get it for you. And, and so, once, so a friend of mine was, had gotten involved with this particular religious organization and I, I'm not I'm not gonna name it because I don't like to disparage other religions but they were reading this book and said man this is really good stuff you need to read this and so I was reading it it's like sort of how to get what you want and it said uh, you know if, if you want something and you really want it you really commit to getting it and you figure out how to get it, and the, you do the stuff that it takes to get it, God will get it for you. Okay, I want something. I figure out how to get it. I do the stuff that it takes to get it, and something outside of me is going to gift it to me. There's a, there's a disconnect there somewhere. And so you see this, you still see this frequently. Now here's the thing about that. There's a lot of truth to this. You know, a lot of the time you'll think, oh, I wish I had such and such, you know. Well, wishing for it's not gonna get it for you. I, you know, I like Dr. Chow's Tesla very much. I'd, I'd, like, a te I'd like a Tesla. Every time I see that car, I think, man, I'd like a Tesla. But I have yet to actually do the stuff that would lead me to getting a Tesla, <laughs> right? 
So if you look at something and you think, okay, I really don't want this. I'm going to make a commitment to doing the stuff to get this. And you figure out how to do it. And, you know, what does it take? What, what do you have to, to have in order to do one? And can I afford it? And can I budget for it? And where can you get one? And all that kind of stuff. Then you're more likely to get it than if you just think, boy, I, I wish I was smart enough to have a Tesla or rich enough to have a Tesla or whatever. And a lot of the time we do put up obstacles to ourselves to prevent ourselves from getting what we think we want. I was, I was doing Tai Chi one day in a park and this woman walked up and she was kind of standing there. She was walking her dog and she stood there and watched me. And she said, oh, I feel so envious of you. Really, why? Well, I tried that once and I couldn't do it. I said, well, if I tried it once, I couldn't do it either. <laughs> You know, you have to put some effort into it and you have to develop that. And so, but in my experience, the problem with this idea that if I want something badly enough, I'll get it, is that human beings do not have difficulty wanting things. We all know how to do that. We don't need to practice it. We need to practice making commitments, maybe, and that sort of stuff. So a good spiritual practice does not lead to, to accumulation, or that uh, does not lead to accumulation. It leads to shedding. So there's this kind of sort of spiritual materialism thing that goes on. That people think, oh, you know, wow, I, I should learn how to meditate. I better download this new meditation app. You don't need an app before you meditate. So you don't need to get caught up in whatever the latest fad is or accumulate spiritual experiences. I get an email once every six months or so from a, from a retreat center in South America that it looks like the most beautiful place on the planet. And every time I get the email, I go, man, I should think about organizing a retreat there. But the reality is you don't need to go to a resort to meditate. In fact, it's probably not really the best place to be you get more happiness from letting go than you do from accumulating. And so a spiritual teaching should not encourage you to accumulate stuff, even spiritual stuff. He says, if it leads to arrogance and ambition, not to modesty, then it's not in line with the teaching. And you think about that and think, well, Okay, so there's occasionally you'll meet somebody who practices in a certain way so they can brag about it, that kind of stuff. And that's, that's you know, he, he was talking a lot about that probably. He would talk to monks about this frequently. There was a discourse where there was a monk who was, who was a really good speaker. And so he, was, he would go to the best neighborhoods and he'd be invited in and given food and stuff. And then he'd go back to the monastery and he'd go, well, I, I give really good Dharma talks, so I get invited into good places. So look at all this great food I get and all these great gifts I get. And the Buddha compared him to a dung beetle. He said, think about dung beetles going out and accumulating a large amount of dung and a dung beetle sitting on his pile of dung going, look at what a great dung beetle I am. He said, that's what this monk is like. But you know, you get people too who who compare their religions to others. And they'll say, you know, my religion is better than your religion, and that kind of stuff. That's not a good spiritual practice either. I mean, maybe your religion is the best religion for you, 
but to put ourselves above others is not a good spiritual practice. And to even our religious identity, to hold it above others, is not a good spiritual practice. He says, if it leads to discontent, not to contentment. So we really need almost nothing. And yet we make demands on others, on our environment, things like that all the time. The problem is not that we don't get what we demand. The problem is that we demand. This doesn't mean you know, that you shouldn't care about making spiritual progress and it doesn't mean that you shouldn't want to be prosperous. It means to recognize that material pleasure is not what makes us happy and to not be greedy even spiritually. You don't have to be perfect to practice the perfections. You just have to practice. It says, if it leads to entanglement, not to seclusion. So, you know, she was going to go off and meditate in the forest, and other monks would do things like that, too. And you think, well, it's very, you know, I can't go off and sit in the woods. I'm a householder or whatever. But think about the things that we do that entangle us. With our electronics and stuff, we're always connected. Always and as a result, we're always distracted. As, as a result of that, we live in this constant state of reactivity. Somebody was talking about how they were leaving one of the social media apps. And they said, because when I, I sit down just to check my whatever it was, Facebook or Instagram or whatever, and says this, you know, I sit there, two hours later, maybe I get up. And in the meantime, I've been just buried under this negativity. And that's true. A lot of this stuff is really designed to, to, again, to trap the mind and then keep us there. Not, maybe not deliberately, but it's kind of the way we're communicating. So a good spiritual practice will help you detach from that sort of thing so that you can see what your mind does. Also, this idea that you're not one of us if you don't believe the way we do. You know, there are religions that kind of push that. That's another form of entanglement. Ideology is a really bad way to make decisions. Values are a good way to make decisions. But ideology does not, really leads us in bad directions more often than not. If it leads to laziness, not to activated persistence, so a lot of times people want the effect of practice without the effort. That I tried that once and I couldn't do it. That lady was a good example of that. You know, I'd like, I see people doing ballet. Well, I'd, I'd like to dance Swan Lake. So you go to one ballet class. Well, I can't do that. Yeah, because you gotta learn all these other things that are boring first before you can do that. And it's kind of true with this too. You know, you're not gonna walk out of here enlightened today, probably, you might. Depends on how, how close you were when you walked in the door, right? You first gotta learn to bow and sit and you know, watch your breath and all of those kinds of things. And then eventually you'll develop the skill that you need in order to be freed. And if it leads to being burdensome, not to being unburdensome. We should be easy to maintain, uh, you know, Monks were taught to accept what was given and not expect anything special. But for the rest of us, what does it mean? Can we be spiritually self-sufficient? Do we really need to be looked after in special ways?
He said, if those, those things you can categorically hold, this is not the teaching. So what is the teaching? What is true? And he said, these qualities lead to dispassion, not to passion. In other words, the mind is not trapped. So you can start to kind of look after you practice for a while and go, okay, how, where is my mind now? How free is it? A really good example of that for me, I think one of the times I realized that, hey, I'm, this is working out for me. Was I was, I've talked about this before probably. I was in line at the supermarket deli and the person making sandwiches was kind of slow. You know, might have been making really good sandwiches and maybe that's why he was slow, who knows. But everybody around me felt like this person should have been moving faster and the line was too long and they're all standing there. And I'm looking around and I, I'm actually feeling pretty good. I mean, you know, compared to all the places in the world that you could be standing, the line of a supermarket deli really ain't all that bad. But I'm looking and people are crossing their arms, <sighs> tapping their feet, you know, and the impatience and it is hanging in the air like some toxic cloud, you know. And I'm going, you know, I used to be just like that. And I'm not like that anymore. I recognize that I got it pretty good. So, you know, I'm gonna, and I'm gonna get my sandwich. It's all right. So when you see that your mind does not get hooked on by, to things like fear, impatience, hatred, that kind of stuff. You can go, okay, the teachings I'm following, that's going in a good place. Uh, to being unfettered, understanding that getting what we want is not the way to happiness, that letting go of desire is often the better way to happiness. Being able to deal with what is and not expecting that the universe somehow be different than it is. Um, sometimes something is worth changing um, and you could put some effort into changing that. But you can do that without being hung up on particular outcomes. Sometimes the way to change is going to be different than you think it is. So being able to go with the flow and still direct things in ways that you think are healthier. To letting go, to shedding, no, understanding that no amount of stuff is going to make you happy. You don't need a meditation app to meditate. Meditation is a good example of shedding. All these things come up and the mind thinks, oh, I want to go there. No, I want to go over there. No, you don't need to go any of those places. You need to go right here. This is where you need to be. And so you let go of all those things that want to drag you off. And that's where the peace comes from. To modesty, not ambition. I've never met anybody who bragged about their attainment, their spiritual attainment, who actually possessed any. <laughs> the people who do anything the best, anything, spiritual practice or anything, in my experience, have been those who really like to do it well and find the process of learning how to do it fascinating. They have a deep interest in what they do, not necessarily in being known for what they do. Does that make sense? When I do something for fame and return and material reward and all of that, my attention is really pulled away from if I do it to do it well. To contentment, not to discontent. So this is an interesting thing. A lot of times people will go, ah, maybe if I practice Buddhism enough, I'll be contented. It sounds reasonable, but 
Don't look to your spirituality to make you contented. Look to contentment to make you spiritual. The practice is contentment. The practice is not a path to contentment. It is to be contented, to recognize that this is where I need to be. Right here, right now. This moment. Not out there, not with the stuff that I think I need. Right here. That is contentment. To seclusion, not to entanglement. Can you be alone with your mind? You know, sometimes on retreats, we have a retreat coming up in July, and we practice noble silence. And that's really a challenge for some people. Silence. Because it means you've got to look at what's going on in here. What's going on in here? What's happening in your mind? Without all of these distractions, we see our own minds more clearly. Sometimes that's a little scary at first. But then we learn to kind of bring some order to that when we pay attention deliberately. It also means, though, that we recognize how we're supported by our spiritual community. Being secluded does not mean being free of a spiritual community. It means recognizing a spiritual community supports you so that you can develop your own wisdom. Listening to me talk and walking out of here, you could recite everything I said today if you had a you know, good enough memory, but it wouldn't, would not equal wisdom. Wisdom means I heard something that resonated, that felt useful. Let me put that into practice and see what the result of that is. And that's where wisdom comes from. And that comes from seclusion. Doesn't mean being alone, means practicing on your own until you develop your own wisdom. To activated persistence, recognizing that you're not gonna get anything without putting some effort into it. Uh, you can ask for the, you know, the mystical jade avocado to enlighten you if you want to, but it'd be a lot better to sit on a cushion and pay attention to what your mind is doing. And to being unburdensome, not to being burdensome. So can you be self-sufficient, but also can you serve others? You know, sometimes people ask me, what does it mean to be a monk? It means to be in service to the Dharma, to be in service to the community. That's what it means to be a monk. It doesn't mean to be special. It doesn't, it's not about the special clothes. It's about what you're doing. And you don't have to be a monk to help others as part of being in a community. There's a famous uh, interaction between a, a Zen master and a student, and the student was really frustrated because he wasn't making much progress with his meditation practice, and he says, I'm so discouraged, what can I do? And the master said, encourage others. And this is the practice, encourage others. That's a big part of it. We go for refuge to the Buddha, the Dharma, and the sangha. And that's why that's useful. It's a jam session where we're, we're practicing with each other's, you know, Dharma music, right? We're working in harmony to, to create something beautiful with our lives. And he says, if you can do that, then you may categorically hold this is the Dharma, this is the discipline, this is the instruction. So thank you. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Adventures in Buddhism. I want to thank Jerry Sprinkle of Sprinkle Graphic Design for creating the new revised logo. 
I hope the conversation about how to tell if a teaching is reliable was beneficial to you, and I hope that you will apply your own insights for developing your spiritual powers. Next episode, I'll share with you some thoughts on a discourse the Buddha gave on the subject of blessings. In the meantime, you know what to do. Go save the world. (music) 